0: Coming at you hot. Agile After Dark has a really amazing guest to talk to us about software engineering, the past, the present, and the future, and how there has to be a cultural change upgrade to technology.
1: Welcome to Agile After Dark the podcast that addresses Agile topics not talked about in the light of day. I'm your host, Greg Adams-Woodford. Sitting here, there is Brandon Gartley, who's the co-host sitting over there. What's up, man? How you doing? Good,
0: man. Good it's, to be so so here. this is
1: our second podcast.
0: Yeah, yeah, our second podcast of, uh, of what is the craziest year maybe ever, right? But we had a really good last one uh, with... Uh, Steve and Shyla talking about coughs of delay. So excited about that, but excited
1: for uh, for today's show for sure. For well, sure, costs of delay. I mean, it could be boring, but go back and listen because it actually is. It's more interesting than it sounds. So I know Jessica's here, who she we've is. known. She's been on the podcast before, right? A Coco host, and she's Coco 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 She's one of our favorite people. She is for sure. Yeah, and she's. She's in the balmy Midwest, upper Midwest region she is. in Minneapolis. Near the Canadians.
2: It balmy hey, so today. It's a, it's a balmy 35. <laughs> you know, the snow is mountains. Things are good.
1: <laughs> did you, did you have, have you had any hot dish lately?
2: Um, no, but we are coming up on Lodafisk season.
1: Oh,
0: Lodafisk. Oh, so, you know,
2: we got that going.
1: That's a nightmare. <laughs> nice,
2: pickly fish flavoring. Mmm.
1: So, welcome, Jess. And then we also have a really special guest, Stas. And I'm going to say um, Stas ZV because I can't pronounce his last name. So, maybe Stas, you can. is he just us like Prince? Is he just like Prince? Or is yeah.
0: just Stas? Stas? Stas. That's right. Yeah. Like or Madonna. Him. Yeah. Or Madonna. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fair.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: We worry, can Josh, just roll I didn't with that. My
2: last name <laughs>
0: oh God, yeah. We, Greg didn't try and pronounce Jess's last name. That was probably a- <laughs>
1: Um But Stas, so why don't you give us a little, just a little bit of background about what you've done and where your focus is?
3: Sure, sure. Um, so I'm a software engineer by training, by many years of uh, practice. I coded for many years. Uh, then at some point, wanted to expand my responsibilities and so i became a software architect built big software systems um my a lot of my experience comes from yahoo i spent 13 and a half years there and um uh, was responsible for large chunk of the advertising system and those are fascinating systems technologically um also while while i was there i got involved with um, engineering processes um because we were trying to upgrade our engineering processes from some uh, You know, something that was started in late 90s and we wanted to bring it into um, modern times. And that was probably seven years, seven, eight years ago. And uh, so got involved with engineering engineering processes. Um, Eventually, we got the entire company to adopt modern processes and our speed went through the roof. Our quality went through the roof. The results were really good. Uh, And so with that, I went to work for Accenture to try to bring some of that goodness to the rest of the industry. And Accenture is a perfect place for that. It was It's a global consulting company. So ended up uh, spending four and a half years there, uh, worked with Fortune 500 companies, federal agencies, helping them with modern architecture and modern processes, so Agile and DevOps, and sometimes even with organizational models and operating models. Uh, and uh, I recently left Accenture and I'm about to start my next gig, and so this is the perfect time to have this conversation because I'm, you know, I'm relaxed. I'm spending time at home in my bubble.
0: Yeah, that's awesome, Stas. And you know, beyond wanting to know how well you can do the Yahoo Yodel, the Yahoo.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, that.
0: Beyond that, um, I, I know that we're super excited. Uh, Greg and I have had an opportunity to work with Stas uh, on, a, on a ver- actually a few things. And we couldn't think of a better person to, to get into what we wanted to talk about today, which I think Greg's going to introduce for us.
1: Actually, I am really interested in this because we talk about agile this and agile that and the frameworks and all that. But today, we're going to talk about technology. And you, you know, the, the title that you uh, gave it is Technology Needs a Culture Change Slash Upgrade. And so I'm, I'm interested in what you think that means.
0: Yeah. Well, there wasn't meant to be a slash. It was meant to be, uh, a quip, if you will, or a joke or something that grabs people's attention. But I mean, there's something to it, which is, there's a lot in terms of cultural change that we've talked about in the past, right. In terms of transformation, how do we change people's mindsets, people's behaviors, um, And using the word upgrade at the end is meant to kind of tie into kind of the technology uh, mindset that a lot of people have, not necessarily Stas, but when people think about technology, they're thinking about, well, when's my next upgrade? When is it going to get better? When am I getting 5.0, 6.0, 7.0? And I think what we wanted to talk with Stas about today is, you know, where where do we come from in that way? In terms of how to maybe get to that mindset, what what were the changes? The main sort of change that happened, and then go from there. And I think just kind of wanted to kick us off with Stas, uh, with kind of that that sort of approach.
2: Yeah, really excited to have someone here that actually knows a thing or two about software, um, and like some folks on the call. <laughs> so true. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> How, I didn't come here to be
1: attacked, Jessica. <laughs> Love
2: you, Greg. Keep answering your um, phone calls so, during the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, answer your phone. Or try to not answer your phone, Greg. Um, so, Stars, um, we'd like to talk a little bit about the, some of the major shifts in software engineering so far. So a little bit back, past looking, given, given what you've seen um, in
3: your experience. Sure, sure. How much time do we have?
2: <laughs>
3: yeah. So I'm I'm gonna start uh, start this conversation. I think in um, from from the times a long time ago, right? Uh, long time ago in the galaxy far, far away. And then do do interrupt me because we want to um, make this interactive. So what has happened more recently in the last 20, 30 years is uh, software approaches to software engineering changed completely, right? And uh, there is there is a reason for that, and I'll go over that in a second. And it's not that the old approaches uh, were wrong. Right? It's not that Waterfall was wrong um, or scientific management was wrong. It was right for the context, right? but the context changed. And so the new approaches uh, were required, and we have developed those approaches over the past 20, 30 years. Um, and so in order for us to understand what we, what we have today, it's always best to start from from long time ago and understand where the old approaches came from. And really, they start from the late 19th century.
0: Oh, I like the sound of this, Craig. I like the sound of this. We got nerd alert. Yeah, I'm nerd loving this. you know if it's in the 1800s, I'm um, I'm all for it. So,
3: well, that that's right. And so, if you think about it, the industrial revolution took a, took a while to get going. Right, but by in the second half of the 19th century is where we're starting to see large size enterprises, right? And large size enterprises required processes, because the, those processes did not exist prior to that. And that's where Frederick Taylor comes in, and they, they develop scientific management, right? And what they say is that efficiency is your North Star in the large enterprise, and so you optimize for efficiency which means this is where you know, where command and control comes from. This is where hierarchical organizations come from, uh, separations of managers and, and workers, long-term planning, all of the good things that we associate with traditional enterprises.
0: So can, can I interrupt and, Stas real quick? Yeah. I mean, this is basically where they were saying, why have this guy who has this degree over here moving rocks, have the guy that's good at moving rocks over here move rocks and have the guy that has this degree do management is that
3: well well yeah and so so the person who's moving rocks we're going to train them to move rocks really efficiency effic- efficiently and then here's another guy who really knows how to ma- make you know a cement mixture or something they're gonna we're gonna train them really efficiency very efficiently right um and somebody is going to know how to lay bricks and they're going to get really good in in, in their in, in their specific task and then there's a manager on top who will organize uh, and optimize uh, this entire process and so that's that's the approach from uh late 19th century early 20th century
1: so what's wrong with that what's wrong with that stuff
0: well it's also it was called scientific what well, was the it was called something right scientific management scientific yeah, yeah. Well, scientific so what's wrong with that so, sounds like yeah,
1: a i mean it, completely practical way to approach solve sol- you well, know problem solving
2: well, it sounds
3: like it, a factory, right? Well, that's exactly that's exactly it. And it works really well. Uh, in fact, this, it's still used in the majority of factories around the world, everywhere. It's being used with great uh, efficiency, with great success. Uh, it introduced, it improved productivity tremendously over the last 100, 150 years. It uh, lifted a lot of people out of poverty. It's a good thing. So by itself, it's a good thing. So now the question is, uh, how does that relate to software engineering, and why did why did I start there? So again, where did software engineering come from? So we have to go back to 1950s uh, and 1960s, where the computer industry really started getting going, and you cannot blame anybody for adopting oh, methods and processes that we knew that worked well in oh, in the industry into into computer industry, right? And so these same methods were adopted and they also worked and they took us into 80s and 90s it would and with again tremendous success but something happened in the 80s and 90s that um that broke that approach
0: neon neon pants no not neon pants that wasn't it
1: <laughs> parachute, parachute pants, I think
0: is what you're oh, parachute pants. yeah para- i think it was parachute 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 pants. Pants. no that wasn't it
3: yeah See, I was gonna build up to that, but you stole my thumb. <laughs> <Damn it>. Okay. No, <laughs> no. Um, so, it, a couple of things actually changed with uh, in the eighties and nineties. If you think about it, oh, for the first time, computers became consumer focused with PCs, and then later internet, um, and then internet came around. And there is actually one thing that uh, Go went unnoticed, but I think mathematically and mechanically had the largest impact on software, enge- software engineering practices. Uh, it's how we ship software. So if you go back to the 80s, go back to the 80s. Do you remember how we shipped software in the 80s? We had floppies. The actual
0: floppies, not like the what looks like the save icon floppy now, like the big floppy floppies. Right? Yeah, exactly. Or yeah. even those. Okay. But, but it,
3: regardless, those were physical devices. Hmm. Right? Those were physical devices. And if I need to get chip software and a physical device too, how frequently can I do that? I can Not do it maybe once or twice right? a year, right? And which means... It
2: has I, to be perfect. because otherwise, It has to, have to be perfect.
3: Exactly. And so my batch size becomes huge too, because I, I mean, I'm just going to try to squeeze all of these features into this one release per year. Right? And in fact, this is queuing... Queuing uh, theory in action, where you're seeing uh, large transaction cost results in large batch size, and so that's that went on until the internet came came around. And when the, with the internet, one critical thing changed, because with the internet, I can go onto the production server. Not that I would ever do that, but I could <laughs> go to production <laughs> For server. Those
2: of you on the podcast that, that can't see Sasha's face.
3: There was just a tiniest bit of a smile when he said he would not <laughs> want a server. I yeah, I will claim the fifth. So I mean, sauce,
0: I mean, we have talked about how much room that porn takes up in server farms in this podcast in the past. So you're you're free. You're we're good. We're we're okay. We got free reign here.
3: It's 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 a safe space. I yes, understand. it is. <laughs> so. You could go onto production server and modify one character if you want, right? And within a split second, it's in the hands of, of your consumer. So your transaction cost went, went, just went down to zero. At which point your batch size becomes, you know, one character, one byte, which immediately mechanically enables speed, enables you to ship software as many times as you, as you can. And so what we started seeing uh, with the internet era is companies taking advantage of this capability, right? Launching fast, learning for production, uh, trying new things, adapting, pivoting, doing various things, right? So taking advantage of speed. In addition to that, you have uh, new technologies coming uh, onto the playing field. So you have internet, you have mobile, you have AI, Right. And all the all the disruptions in the history of the world is technological disruption has always uh, been on top of these technological innovations, step function improvements in technology. There's that. And now there's uh, ability for anybody in the world to access the latest and greatest technology without any capital investment, because cloud companies make it available immediately. As soon as it's out there, as soon as it's good quality, it's out there and available.
1: So, Sus, let me ask a question. Distributed sort of models for software have been around for much longer than the cloud, right? What, 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 and then AWS came around and they were like, oh, we just dial up and dial down, but it was really expensive. Like, what, what was the, it, I'm, I'm interested to hear from your perspective, what makes it m- more Interesting than it was in the past, right? Because you had in the '80s you had servers and you know distributed networks and that kind of thing. But what what happened with and I say AWS just because I have personal experience with them. Um, they're expensive to spool things up and spool things down. But what you're saying is it might be worth it.
3: Yeah, and I think if you invite uh, if Frederick Taylor would show up um, today, and they would look at how companies operate, modern companies operate, you know, uh, his hair would be raising, uh, would be standing up on his head, uh, because it's the opposite, of, it's the opposite of efficiency, right? In many cases, companies take speed over efficiency, right? If you look at how Amazon operates or Facebook operates, right, uh, lots of decentralization, lots of redundancy. Uh, But because they can move so fast, because they can make decisions quickly and implement those decisions quickly, uh, that more than compensates for lack of efficiency. Or uh, it's not necessarily lack of efficiency. You can still have quite a lot of efficiency. It's just not as perfect as scientific management would like it to be.
0: So I I don't want to interrupt kind of the the phase that you're going into, but Mm -hmm. I'm kind of curious – We've been talking about software engineering very much from a technology standpoint, but I'm curious from the actual engineer standpoint when we're talking Mm -hmm. about software engineers. I think in Agile After Dark, we try and kind of dive into what are some of the commonalities that people have in their minds and how they look at things versus what's really under the covers and what's really going on day to day. And so for me, I think it's interesting in that when you look at how developers or engineers and what is the difference between those two, which is important. I, mean, I want Stas to maybe get into that a little bit. But I, I, from experience working at a lot of enterprise companies, top 500, top 50, where they're saying, yeah, like I want a change done. I have that change order gone through the system and someone's in a room punching numbers and code and they're supposed to make that change. And I don't want any sort of creative license against that. And that's where a lot of people, I think, look at developers slash engineers and say, yeah, they're there just to implement what I want to implement. And what's the, so we talked about the scientific management system of, you know, you're you're good at moving rocks. You're good at being management. Is there a different level now in terms of, well, maybe I know a better way to move those rocks because I've been moving those rocks.
3: Yeah, no, so definitely, and I think it's wrong to compare uh, before and after point by point, because the new world is completely different, right, it operates on a very different set of of physical laws, right, Uh, and so we have to think about it from the perspective of. If you look at software engineering you also you're talking about software engineering. Uh, It is it is kind of like what you were describing in a sense. There is a concept, there is an idea, and you're trying to turn it into feature. Like we've cache. all heard of concept to cache, right? And we're trying to optimize some, that entire value stream concept to cache. We're not yeah. only talking about concept to cache, we're talking about concept to a feature in production, right? That's kind of, that's where software engineering, if you narrowly focus on software engineering, that's where it plays. And so if you look at that, um, value stream, concept to feature in production, and you try to optimize it for speed as opposed to efficiency, what happens? Right, So before we described, we had you know command and control, hierarchical um, management structures, etc, et etc, cetera, et cetera, and people optimized for moving rocks. So what is does the new world look like? And so the, to answer that question, you you kind of have to play this mental game and try to apply a theory of constraints onto software engineering as it exists, or in this value stream of concept to feature in production. And uh, ask yourself a question where Where is the first bottleneck? And from my experience working with multiple companies, many, many companies, especially in Fortune 500 space, the first bottleneck is coupling of people, coordination of people, inability to move independently of each other. Just And, and to put it simply, an organization of a thousand people cannot move fast. Like An organization of 500 people cannot move fast. And when you talk about my family, an organization of five people cannot move fast. <laughs> <Right>? But, <laughs> but uh, and so the answer to that, so that's the first bottleneck. And the answer to that is decentralization and decoupling, right? Which comes primarily in two forms. One is mechanical architectural decentralization. So that's why we talk about uh, microservices and reactive architectures, right? Not because the, they're just, it's a fad, but because it allows us to break, break up organizations and give them the ability to move in the, or components and, and uh, give them the ability to move and execute independently and operate independently of each other. So there's a mechanical aspect to decentralization. But then there's a second aspect to decentralization, which is organization and governance. And this is where a lot of companies run into trouble, right? The inability to decentralize decision-making and giving and inability to give individual teams the uh, tools and the power and um, enablement to move independently, make decisions respons- uh, in- uh, independently, and take responsibility for their actions independently.
2: So that's that's one of the one of the larger kind of barriers to what you were talking about before is being able to make a change and have it happen in production minutes seconds later. And one of yeah. the bigger barriers is the inability to get through the organizational.
3: Yeah, uh, I- exactly. Like, in, in, also, okay. in if you're, so my experience, if you're talking about large organizations trying to move fast, the best case scenario, they're spending 20, 25% coding. The rest of the time, they're trying to coordinate. The rest of the time, they're trying to release uh, because they're so entangled with each other.
0: So they're not the automatons of lore of i've got a room full of developers engineers what do you want to call them like pressing buttons away because that would be counter to what you just said or tontons automatons not tontons Tontons are the star wars like smelly things right
1: well stas knows star yeah yeah wars, we, we have a, well.
0: I, I had to build on the star wars references right
3: um, yeah so uh, that's that's your first bottleneck Right, uh, and let's say you resolve this bottleneck, and you decentralize your organization, you decentralize your architecture, and now you have small independent teams moving um, on at their own pace with their own responsibilities, which is which is a major, major, major step forward, right? So then we start talking about what does software engineering look like in those and on those independent teams, right? And uh, the very again, what is the the second bottleneck? And again from experience i would say that the second bottleneck is typically inability to get bits out to production so from developer fingers to production it just takes way too long to get bits out there because there's so much there are so many handoffs and there are so many manual steps in that in that process right and so we're talking about this is 2020 for the past 10 years or so we have the ability to completely automate that uh, process from from developer fingers to productions to production there is no excuse not to automate it it's been done with all kinds of technologies it's been done with systems large and small it's been done in the most complex uh, regulated environments you can imagine banks and pharmaceutical companies so i don't want to hear it when somebody gives me excuses for not doing it there is no excuse for not doing it
2: That's, I have a question for you because I like I know at least for me oftentimes I run into the um, the argument of yeah yeah that can be done and list off of a series of organizations but we're but, but we're different or we're you know we've got this many regulations we've got you know we've got this many this many all of these other things that we need to in, and literally, even yesterday, I was told that it's not worth automating a system because um, in three to five years they're going to get rid of it.
3: Right, right. Two different conversations. One is it, it will not work for me, and I will call BS on that. And uh, there's really no excuse not to automate. The second uh, question is: Is it worth it? Right, because it is a major capital investment. Right, and if I'm if the system is in maintenance mode and it's gonna take me six months of work to automate a software release, and then it's gonna shut down in three to five years, maybe there is no ROI on that. I think that's a fair conversation. Uh, but if that system is seeing constant uh, feature development, then absolutely things need to be automated to, to get, um, again, this is just the first step, get bits out to production. So which involves automating build, uh, certification, assembly, deployment, whatever, whatever happens, uh, in that pipeline.
0: It's interesting that we're talking about cultural change. I think that for me has been one of the biggest things I've observed from a cultural change, cultural change standpoint that kind of led into what the title of this was was because it really became the DevOps, you know, that kind of that bringing ops into dev and not just doing it to say, oh, okay, we're going to make hand the handoff to ops faster." It's like we need to bring ops into as you said, from from the fingers of the developers to production faster, I think it's also interesting that you use the theory of constraints uh, concept there because that's you know, uh, Goldblatt, you know the 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 goal that stuff that was you know very much a manufacturing way of looking at things in a different way um, and, and trying to approach that. So how do we, you know, look at with DevOps being the most recent cultural change, what are some of the things that you're seeing now, Stas, that are, to, to build on what Jess was asking, that are the biggest uh, bottlenecks and, and constraints that we're having to either throw capacity at or
1: throw uh, some opportunities at to, to improve it? And I, I would add to this, why does the business care? So in your answer, Stas, yeah, that's why question. does the business care?
3: So the business care uh, should care, and they do care, about their ability to uh, respond to market challenges and take advantage of market opportunities. Right. And if you look at just, if you just talk about that, that requires what I typically refer to as continuous adaptability. And there are many aspects that would go into um, developing a, a continuously adaptable organization, from being extremely data-obsessed to being... Um, to have analytic analytics capabilities to make sense of that data, to ability to make fast decisions, to pivot fast, to uh, pay attention to establish value hypotheses and um, then prove them ro- uh, right or wrong, etc. But all of this uh, relies on the fact that you can deliver software fast to production, develop software and deliver it fast to production. And if you can't, then what good is the rest of the capability? Ability to get bits out to production still doesn't mean that you have bits. Those bits are of high quality, yeah. right? Or that they can carry any value. So after you get that ability to get them to production, you need to have the uh, invest in things like, and typically, you know, your typical XP practices to give to um, make sure you're not shipping garbage to production, but right? that you build quality in. So things like unit testing, TDD, or pair programming, or maybe code reviews, whatever you're into, right? Um, that's that develop maintainable code, right? So that's that's important. But even that is not sufficient, right? Because you're having, um, okay, so you're you're sending bits to production. Maybe they're of high quality, but who knows if there's any value in there? And so that's where uh, value-oriented processes come in. So agile, agile processes are typically value-oriented processes. Because the first step is you prioritize your backlog uh, by value, right? Uh, and so that's so you, you need to have a process, an engineering process on top. So finally, we're talking about a process, not mechanics. Uh, and then even building on that, once you get those uh, features to production, so now we're talking about features or chunks of features. Uh, so you have this value hypothesis, but it's just a hypothesis. How do you prove it true? And so you need to have the ability to uh, measure whatever's important to you, critical metrics that are important to you to uh, reason about your features and your value and prioritization, right? And that's kind of how, this is where in my mind, the bottlenecks of software software engineering get resolved. And after that, you start looking at the wider picture and uh, look at various aspects of the enterprise that are not software engineering related. So, Stav, it's
2: interesting that you say that because one of the things that I've noticed in several organizations is that they that they do a lot of the right stuff all, all the way up to validating their hypotheses. So from a software engineering standpoint, where's that gap mm-hmm. or how do we close that gap? Uh,
3: well, so I think step one is, um, you, you asked, actually, Brendan asked the question that we never got to, which was like, what fails? And like, you see, you still see companies trying to uh, develop their agile capabilities, Scrum, SAFe, whatever you name it, without addressing the some of the mechan- those mechanical steps of having the ability to release fast. And of course, it's not working working out well for them. And and then you also mentioned DevOps, right? Having some of that operations mindset, integrating some of those operating capabilities up front, right? And so once you go there, I think it becomes much easier to uh, gather the necessary. Because the mechanics are very similar, gathering necessary critical metrics and feedback in production. It's somewhat, uh, in my mind, the concept of the DevOps, cultural concept of DevOps, of, of taking the mindset of operations into development, uh, operates very similar to what Jess, you're talking about, where uh, you need to take product mindset into development, right? It's uh, bizops, if you will, or dev, dev bizops, whatever. There's a lot to be said about developers understanding the value behind the features that they're building, right? And so integrating, first of all, that understanding and alignment on um, understanding of business value in in whatever specific domain or specific context, and then having the ability to capture those metrics uh, in production and make sense of them, right? So so to me, uh, it still starts with those mechanics of software delivery and operations, and then on top of that, you build the capabilities to gather business metrics.
1: So, if if you have five developers that every week they make two decisions, right? So they make ten to twenty decisions on how to develop software because they're doing the work. It's they're they're you know they're actually doing it. If they don't have an understanding of the product of what you're trying to do, the feature or whatever it is. Then it's 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 for not because it doesn't matter because they're they're gonna make those decisions because they love to build stuff and they love to develop things and they're gonna just do it whether or not they have the right direction. Do you, I mean do you agree with that? Uh,
3: so I'm going to change it a little bit. And I would say so. Uh, developers will show up uh, at nine in the morning or whenever they wake up, and then they will start typing and they will be typing for the next eight hours, right? So it's your job to make sure that uh, as they're typing, they're making decisions every second, right? So as a manager, you're no longer sitting there command and controlling them. You need to give them guidance and heuristics to make uh, right decisions. And then coming back to what you were saying, unless they intrinsically understand the product and the business value behind that product and their uh, customers, they're going to make a bunch of silly decisions along the way.
0: I like to call it gold plating, Stas, because developers are like, ooh, I can come up with the most interesting way to solve this problem in 12 steps versus two, because that's the challenge, right? Where's the challenge? I don't see it. You see it, Greg? I don't see a challenge. I don't see it. But I mean, that's that's in, in my experience, most of the time, it's different than what maybe people normally think, which is, oh, if I don't give enough guidance to them, they're going to do very little. My experience is when I've seen business not give the understanding of this is what we're trying to achieve. And they're kind of like, Oh, we need to do this. And then they kind of disappear. Then They're like, wow, we're going to make the coolest thing you could ever imagine. God, because, because
1: they're developers. They yeah, want to like build cool stuff. Yeah, like, that's, exactly. And that's, 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 that's the mentality it's I'm saying just... is
0: different than maybe kind of the, the standard person that's thinking about what a developer slash engineer does.
3: Well, but, if if your developers are fully aligned with your product people and your business people and your sales people as to what the company is going after the the mountain that you're trying to climb they're not going to be working on some random stuff they will be part of the mission and they will be contributing to the mission uh, but if you disenfranchise them up front and treat them as automatons um, as then what do you expect
0: they're going to be tauntauns and they're going to be smelly and they're tauntauns. not going to get the stuff done. That's <laughs> because <So laughs> they're going to show up at 12 and leave at four. So. so
1: I think it's time for a break. I think and, it is time for a break because well.
0: I'm trying to force Star Wars references in here so you know it's tauntaun. time for a break. Like no <laughs> what? what are those little furry things? They're like
3: walks or something. Ewoks. Ew- Ew- Ewoks. <laughs> oh my
0: god. See,
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> the worst ever. <laughs> Oh, hey, yeah.
3: I
2: have, I have the best EWOT costume. Oh, got so cute ears. <laughs> That's never awesome. mind.
0: All right. Well, we're gonna transition to break, and uh, as usual, we have a, a, a an episode sponsor. So we'll pitch it over to the sponsor. Our sponsor today is Easy Changes. Easy changes are what everyone is looking for, and no one seems to be able to implement. Change a date. Uh, should
2: be no problem.
1: That's right. Need to add a field? Well, that sounds like it's easy as pie. Although I don't know what that means. Is that Andy Griffith 1950s? What what is easy as pie? That's right, Greg. Sign up now to join the petition to
0: tell your nearest developer that they need to stop being so difficult. Easy, easy changes, changes are here to stay. stay.
1: Well, and I'm gonna I'm gonna fudge it a little bit so we can because I'm like, what is it, the hell does that mean? Yeah, exactly. So he's gonna he's gonna ruin the ad the first time. Like, so don't. Are we in the 1950s? Great, because so he's never been
0: able to, to actually follow a script ever. I don't know
2: why I thought
0: this time would be any <laughs> Never mind. By <laughs> the way, we did <laughs> it last time.
2: Notes.
0: To give Jess a lot of credit, we did it last
1: time. Yes, yeah, because I wasn't involved. <laughs> it was true. the two of you. <laughs> true. Director's note. <laughs> and we're back. And we're
0: back. And we're back. All right. So after that amazing conversation in the first bit, I think we all needed to grab a drink, refresh, re- re-gather ourselves so let's start with our guest, actually. Uh, our friend Stas. Stas, only known as Stas like Madonna and Prince. What What does someone of a celebrity of that type actually drink?
1: Well, he's Stas ZV. Yeah. Well, Lowercase V. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
3: Let's see. So I'm drinking uh, Four Roses Small Batch Bourbon.
2: Oh, my guy.
0: Very sophisticated. I think I should go Nest or something sophisticated like that. I'm bringing out the drink, Jess. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. You're gonna I, see it. I oh can my see God. the
2: I can see the blue. I almost commented on it earlier. Yeah. I yep.
0: so this is what I'm calling
2: deeply embarrassed for you
0: already. Stas I'm calling this the C B G G drink,
2: mm-hmm.
0: which is <laughs> which is uh Gatorade Cool Blue with gray goose. So C B G G. That's that's uh, my nice. drink of choice tonight. <laughs> it's a wreck of Grey Goose. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like Grey Goose for last, with hydration.
2: Well, <laughs> the last time you drank... Electrolytes. They're good Blue for you. Drink. So Blue drink, essentially, was because we've gone a little too far off the deep end. Uh, and it turns out, apparently, you like it. This is a drink of choice, this Powerade situation.
0: Yeah, when you got a kid, you can't get too drunk these days. It's, you know, uh,
2: okay. Yeah. Okay.
0: like you go, you so go to I bed at 12 it. and feel a little, eh, feel a little like I had a bit of drink. He doesn't care. He wakes up at three. <laughs>
2: and then you look at me and say, dude, I'm good. I just drank a whole bunch of electrolytes. Let's do this.
0: Let's thing. do this. You want to play? <laughs> Done.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. You want to laugh? Done. That's you want to poop? What's Done. What's your
1: problem? Like you <laughs> drinking electrolytes. What's your problem? Well,
0: that's what I'm saying. I'm thinking ahead. Which is actually a very apropos of our section. But we still haven't heard from Jess what Jess is drinking. I'm sure it's going to be something very exotic.
2: I almost grabbed my small batch, and then right next to it was Basil Hayden's. So I grabbed the Basil Hayden's tonight. Ooh. All
1: right.
2: Basil on the rise. Yep,
1: delicious. Your place looks nice. Are you in your new place?
2: Thank you. Yes, I am. I'm excited about it. I'm no longer in the hovel. There's like a whole
0: room behind me, it's crazy. <laughs> she, people on the podcast can't see this, but she has a very nice looking guitar in the corner in the back of the room. I'm just waiting for her to rock out, and then like be Yahoo, and like end the night. <laughs> <laughs> what are you drinking, Jeff? Oh, I've got my lead uh, already. I can tell.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Gregory, I'm doing the typical vodka cranberry. That's not cranberry though. Uh, it's not. No.
0: Whoops. It's it's
2: uh it's good oh, for the fatty liver. Uh, oh yeah,
1: it's it's
0: um, like a Pam- pomegranate, right? Pomegranate. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Mm,
3: I, I'm surprised, yeah, Greg.
2: I'm,
3: I, 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 I've been told you're a connoisseur of Jello shots. <laughs> 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 there
1: there are, there's photographic evidence of <laughs> me is. not liking the jello shot
0: so we were talking about this is where we need to get to the point jess and you may or may not approve of this uh where like a lot of podcasts we need to start recording the podcast so that people can actually see us having our conversations but
2: planning crime does it
0: I... yeah i know <laughs> I know
2: <laughs> after a nice long day of work, the first thing I want to do is be on a video recording.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh uh, <laughs> so uh, with that being the case about talking about the future uh, we wanted to really get into with Stas we had a really good conversation in the first section about kind of how we got to where we're at. And based on his vast experience, really understand where he sees kind of the technology going, but keeping to the theme of kind of the culture change and, you know, how technology, yeah, you know, we have the theories in terms of things are get smaller and faster, right. Uh, through, through just kind of advances, but where does it, you know, where's the next DevOps, you know, sort of kind of thought process. And- yeah. It's,
1: it's sort of like microservices make, it makes total sense, but how does that translate to business? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what's, what's kind of the next steps in, in what you're seeing
0: Stas and whether it's what you're seeing or what you, you think is going to be out there in the future.
3: Yeah, no. So, I, I mean, this is to, um, total speculation on my part, but um, what I'm thinking is that whatever is mechanical, whatever doesn't require human judgment will be automated and hidden by the platforms. So all of those things that we discussed about bids getting to production quicker, it doesn't require a lot of uh, human judgment, right? A lot of that can be automated and hidden by the platforms uh, and abstracted away by the platforms, and cloud providers will do it for us. So we don't have to wait long for that. Uh, On the other hand, whatever does require human judgment will still be there 10, 20, 30 years from now. So architectural conversation will probably still happen 20 years from now you still need to make a uh, human judgment around value proposition of certain features, right? That will still persist. But I think once you, once you uh, go through all of the steps that I discussed, you reach a point where software engineering is no longer your bottleneck. And this is where we need to start applying um, things that I mentioned in the first part to the larger business, you know, being uh, data obsessed, being focused on data analytics and having the being user obsessed, having the ability to, uh, make quick decisions and follow up on them and in a sense you, you kind of apply in the same fundamental principles but the, to the entire enterprise and we don't have to go far for examples of companies that operate like that today be that google or amazon and these are the powerhouses of today right and unless other companies can manage those capabilities they will be crushed
2: what do you on, see as the barriers of um the barriers from going from kind of almost more still stuck in the 90s almost, maybe
3: early 2000s, yeah. to being uh, the Yahoo, the Amazon. So. No, so you have some, very few examples of companies uh, going through that transition successfully. I think my favorite example is always Walmart, right? Amazon shows up and starts competing with you. You can You can roll over or you can try to fight and they chose to fight and they've done tremendously well for themselves, right? But those examples are few and far between. Most companies, for whatever reason, and it's mostly their internal reasons, are incapable of prioritizing um, future over immediate needs, right? Whether it's because um, a lot of the C-level executives are uh, are not there for a very long time. You know, life expectancy of a C-level executive is very short nowadays, and they have very short-term goals. Part of it is just how um, public companies are operating uh, and what kind of what Wall Street forces them to do. So it's very hard for a lot of them to take uh, this long-term view and uh, make the right investments. And if your short-term, uh, and if your C-level executives are only there for a short-term, they need to show very quick results and move on, right? So uh, there is not a lot of long-term thinking and long-term investment that's happening uh, at the C-level or in the boardrooms. How
2: does that trickle down to the engineering side? What- that Those um, short-term decisions, yeah. how does that trickle down into the culture
3: of what's happening with the engineering? Right. Um, so you cannot really make any changes. So all of these attempts at agile transformations or DevOps implementation can maybe solve, uh, first of all, a lot of them just outright fail. Uh, but if they do succeed, they solve just one small area of the entire value stream. right? And uh, they do not result uh, in something that's impactful to the entire enterprise. Uh, but that's the, that's that's the that's the good example. Uh, the bad example is when um, everything is being very short-term oriented. That eventually all of these companies come to the point that it's all about cost cutting because they cannot compete, they cannot generate new sources of revenue, and so uh, revenue growth starts slowing down. They they get into this vicious cycle of uh, cost cutting, and it's very hard to get out of it. Right? Only, very few companies escape that cycle, uh, and so life becomes uh, very difficult for um, line-level engineers. I think a lot of us have probably lived through that.
0: It's really interesting that you bring up that the C-suite is the, I hate to say, life expectancy for someone at that level is short. Building off of that, then if we're talking about cultural change, because that's not going to be the focus for them, they're going to be focused on, to your point, either it's cost-cutting or it's delivering a specific thing to a specific customer to, to make their name, Who then from, uh, I kind of want to say from a technology standpoint, let's start there and then we can build off of it from, uh, looking at how does software engineering cultural change happen then if it's not coming from a CTO, for instance, where, where do you see that originating from?
3: Oh, it's, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen unless it has, um, executive sponsorship by the way it's no incident that uh, I mentioned Walmart and they were able to take a long term view because you know Walton family is still there and uh, they still feel ownership of that company
0: and they understand supply chain and value chain is probably not a big
3: uh, jump for them yeah Yeah. a lot of these companies if you think about it uh, the the classic example of Netflix uh, versus Blockbuster Blockbuster had all the all the um, assets to go to war with Netflix, just, they didn't have the ability to move fast and adapt fast. But, uh, but they had, they had brand name recognition. They had distribution, they had customer base, they had presence in every corner and how fast, and they had advanced warning. People were saying Netflix is coming for you for 10 years.
2: And I met Prince in a, bo- in a blockbuster once. So, you know, I would have stuck with that forever just on the chance chance of meeting Prince again.
0: Oh, uh, the is living in Minnesota. Yeah. <laughs> so that's really interesting. So that that takes us to an interesting place to us for this, the, for this section because the technology is going to continue at the pace it's going to. And when we talk about that, the title of this is technology needs a culture change upgrade it seems apropos but I don't know where it comes from and I don't know what the answer is and I don't mean to put you on the spot but it seems to me to be a call that's actually more important than maybe we thought of when we put this this concept of a podcast together but
1: I'll ask this question to Stas is product more important than technology is product management more important than technology? because technology they'll build anything you want them to build. If they can't understand because of bad communication the value of what they're trying to do, the vision of what they're trying to do, they don't they don't it doesn't matter what they do. They can build the greatest stuff in the world, but that doesn't matter.
3: What's more important an arm or in the leg or a leg, right? Uh, I think both are important, Uh, but uh, I see, I I mean, I see where you're going, right? If you can somehow magically, if you're a product person, you have a brilliant idea and you can go to uh, a cloud provider, be that AWS or GCP or whoever, and assemble your product yourself, uh, then, or you pay some uh, cheap labor somewhere. They can do it quickly for you and cheaply. Uh, Then technology is just that it's commodity. That's one view. Uh, I think that's that's a valid view for a lot of use cases. However, all the best companies are masters of their domain, both product-wise and technology-wise. Right? And you see some of those best companies actually outsourcing uh, some of the commodity aspects of running a company or some of the commodity aspects of technology stack. Tech. But where it matters, where it comes to their, their revenue and their specific domain knowledge and their specific domain uh, know-how, It is absolutely uh, vital for them to have those technological capabilities
0: so if you were to look at the guy that came up with the the waterfall paper back in the day uh worked for i can't remember but anyway he basically was like hey this is the way that i see things going but at, and here's the illustrations of the different gateways and stuff. And at the end of the paper, he's like, "This is fraught with problems, and we, you know, we should think about prototyping and all this stuff." But no one paid attention to that, right? They just were like, "Oh yeah, that's exactly the way we're doing this stuff." This was
1: our first podcast.
0: It was, yeah. And that's that shows my age. It's you know been a couple of years, and I you know I used to be able to bring up his name on command. But where we're going with technology, it seems as though. With the concept of DevOps, with the concept of cloud, you know, versus on prem, you know, you're able to like spin things up really quickly and so forth. There's a lot of excitement in terms of the the possibilities. But uh, what you've been saying, Stas and Jess's questions and, and what Greg came up with, my my thought and, and question to you is have we kind of hit that point where, yeah, we can describe what it is but we're still fraught with uh, problems that are just around the corner and we should be thinking about it in a different way.
3: Also transformations are not easy. I would say that at this point, our development, we know all of the ingredients of success. We know what needs to be done. It's just the resolution to get it done. It's the will to get it done, the fortitude and, uh, Yes, there is some complications in how you go about it and lots of moving pieces. But uh, first and foremost, I do not see that will in a lot of places. I see the desire, but they're not willing to pay what it takes.
0: Yeah, that's that's illuminating and, and something that I think all of us have seen. We, we had had a podcast about what we call management debt, right, which is similar to technical debt where people have been brought up through a system for a long time and they cough and then get in the way of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not Jessica coughing this time. It's actually Greg. Um, the yeah, it's a first. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting to hear you say that Stas because we've had a conversation in this podcast about bottom up or top down transformation and you know, what, what actually makes sense. But I think more and more as I've, had conversations with people much smarter than myself. It comes down to that, that leadership and that understanding of, we're going to go all in if the poker, you know, standpoint and say, we really think this is the direction we need to go, but there's very few people that are willing to make that commitment. Well,
2: it's the bravery of this intuitiveness, Hmm. right? Like it's, 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 that is a, it's a, it's a brave decision. To continue on, even though, because what we all know is in transformations, there it's it, just as Scott said. It's not easy. It's hard, and it's the bravery to get through the hard, yeah. and 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 actually make it to the other side of the mountain. So many people quit at the first summit or the second summit, whatever it is. The first, what do you call it? You know, the base camp, the first base camp, and the second base camp. And, and if you're not willing to go all the way to the top, then that's that's right. That first base camp is better than than not doing it all, but that first base camp is not going to let you see the sun sunrise at the top of Machu Picchu.
3: <laughs> that's right. Uh, and uh, uh, who's the question is always who's going to stick their neck out, who's going to take the risk? Because the chances of success um, are pretty, I mean, slim by by what companies are used to um, and there's a lot of reasons for that but who's willing to take on that five-year projects of transformation with lots of uh, hurdles along the way who's gonna who's gonna take that risk where they can get their just very specifically they can they can get their annual bonus by just delivering and cost delivering in their normal way uh, just a regular set of features and cost cutting along the way as well it so takes a real leader it's a real visionary who will make the decision and also allow their people to make mistakes.
2: Exactly right. And it seems to me as more the more that we have real leadership in in a, in a multitude of companies and organizations, it makes it easier for other leaders to say, we we want to go be like that. We want to go. We want to go in that direction. And then obviously they have to figure it out for themselves. But if there are mo- there are several examples of how to get this done. At least they don't feel like they're in a vacuum. So I guess my question for you, Saz, is what's that that next step that we can prove is possible?
3: In software engineering transformations? Mm -hmm. Uh, So to me, proving that it's possible is very easy because so many companies have done this already, right? And there is also beyond that, we can even create a very simple roadmap, a traditional roadmap that people take to... uh, to go through through a transformation and the mechanical part is what i've been what i described with you know starting with uh, getting bits out to production putting quality and putting value in then you know hypothesis-driven development things like that uh, and then we can layer up cultural change management aspects to that as well with communications and training and things like that there are very standard roadmaps and trans- transformational roadmaps that at high level will probably look very similar if you talk to any consulting company or people who have done this multiple times will create you a roadmap. That's probably somewhat, sim- they're probably somewhat similar. Uh, so that's, that's not, that's not a problem. The first step is, is, is commitment and from the, from the leaders of uh, commitment and willingness to go through pain, to go through mistakes and allowing their people, let, you know, let them, let their people roam free and make their own decisions and, Take, and take responsibility for those decisions and for the mistakes and creating that culture. That's, that's the responsibility of leadership. That's, I think that's the first step.
0: So basically we've gone from a, you know, what, if you look at the title of this is technology needs a cultural change upgrade and we've gone to leadership really needs a cultural change upgrade to influence and make that happen. So with that, uh, I want to go to a break and Make sure that you, uh, as always, go to feedback at agileafterdark.com to give any feedback on the the podcast. As I mentioned before, it's now available on Spotify and, and iTunes, so look up Agile After Dark, and we'll catch you on the other side.
2: podcast you know what i'm yes, to need a quick
0: actually, break, break so yeah. yeah i'm going to make actually, another one, uh, one, one, i'm gonna make another cbgg hmm. Does anyone want one <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: i'd like a jello shot please yeah. <laughs> but w- w- wait, 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 wait <laughs> So i'm not v- vegan and all i all i eat is uh, mcdonald's it's cheap
1: We're on iTunes, Spotify, and if you have any feedback, send it to feedback at agileafterdark.com. dot com. That's right.
0: the The whole inter interweb. It's just like it's it's amazing what it does.
1: And thank you so much to Stas to spend his time um, doing this. I I really appreciate it. Yeah. Jess, not so much because whatever, but. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think just so uh,
0: I think just did have one final uh, sort of thing. She wanted to, to, to ping uh, Stas about and then kind of let them wrap up on
2: that. Yeah, I guess I was curious about data analytics and making sure that we understand the data and making decisions based on that information that we get, where do you see the line in ethical practices? I'm really thinking about more about like the, maybe the feeds that we get or the information or the the ads that we receive. Um, Where's the, where's the line on like complete capitalism versus making sure that everybody has somewhat of the same information as a technologist? How do you make sure that that happens?
3: Yeah. No, so I think, uh, again, there are mechanical aspects to it that are uh, that need to be taken care of. Uh, one is it's, as you collect the data, it's quite easy to do it in a very anonymized or pers- even not pers- in a personless uh, way where the data is just data about feature usage and it doesn't relate to specific users. Right. So uh, we solve that, that aspect of it, right. We don't include any personally identifiable information or even anonymized forms of that. Uh, but then the second question is like, what do you do with that data? Once you gather the data, you can optimize your product potentially to the point where uh, it crosses the ethical barrier to uh, manipul- manipulation. That line, I, Thankfully, a lot of, we still have time to figure that out for most products, Uh, but for in situations like uh, social networks or advertising, I think that's a, that's a very pertinent conversation today. At the end of the day, it comes down to values that the company uh, carries into the conversation uh, and the policies developed on top of those values. And I don't think there is a, and of course, uh, government uh, regulations. I do not think there is an easy answer to that and uh, companies will have to go through a lot of evolution of those approaches and they will draw the lines in very different places. And we actually, we can see it even between social networks that join the lines in different places today and between advertising companies as well. Uh, I think uh, companies will have to go through that. We as a society will have to go through that. Uh, I don't know that we have a prescribed answer today.
0: Well, you may not have that answer today, Stas, but I'm sure you will uh, tomorrow or in the very near future. So we hope we get to have you back on the show. Thank you so much for your time and to my co-co-hosts. This is another episode of Agile After Dark. Please give feedback to feedback at agileafterdark.com. Until then, talk to you next time. two three easy changes easy changes
2: are here, here to stay,
0: stay. do not get that quick? Wait, okay so we're all doing it together people? all no. of us easy changes are here to say so i want to count oh up. i was supposed to say yeah. says
2: all of, us, right? All all right. of all us all of us <laughs> all of us
0: all of us okay, okay. so I'll, I'll count down three two one easy okay right ready three two one Easy changes. changes easy to are okay,
2: innocent.
0: it's three, two, one, go. Not three, two, one. So it's not two. Go. No, it's
1: three, it's two, up okay. one, go. Right. Okay. Hopefully, Stas is entertained by this. We'll try one more
2: time. Uh, endlessly entertained. <laughs> <laughs>
1: this will be in the outtakes, Look, by the life. way. Just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> So know. we're, we're <laughs> saying easy changes are here to stay? Yeah, all okay. together. Okay, good. All right. I'm, now that I'm clear. Yeah. It only took me three times. All right, speaking of three, three, two, one.